Father, thank you for drawing us all, bringing us all together here this morning. Father, for each of us, whatever's happened this week, uh, whatever is currently going on for us, Father, we pray now that you will help us. Please help us to, uh, to hear your word to us. Uh, please help us to think carefully about these things. Uh, please give us hearts that are able to receive what you have to say to us. And Lord, please fill us with a deep and lasting hope that can come from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, or the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. I, the teacher, was king over Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It's uh, wonderful to be with you again today. Sue and I uh, enjoy catching up with uh, old friends down here and being able to uh, share this time. And today we do come to this, this book of Ecclesiastes. It'd be great to have that passage open in front of you, although I'll, I'll wander a little bit around the first few chapters of uh, Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. Uh, there's that outline that Duncan mentioned. So let's get stuck in. I remember going to a funeral a couple of years ago and afterwards at morning tea, I was just trying to connect with some people that I didn't know and I saw a young man in his 20s that I, I hadn't seen. So I went up and had a chat to him and you do what you do when you meet people on those social occasions. I asked what he did and he explained that he was completing a, a PhD thesis. He was a research scientist and that was what he was, he was undertaking. I asked him what he was doing it in, and I didn't really understand what he said. Uh, but, but essentially, the bottom line was, he was saying that he was doing research into cancer cures, and that that's what his, his research was contributing towards. And I said to him, that, that must be very rewarding. And he got this sort of wry smile on his face. And he said, you would think so, wouldn't you? He said, here's the thing, I spent all my day in this lab doing this research on this area of 
cancer in order to help people survive cancer and live longer. And then I go home and I turn on the news and there are people in different parts of the world. There's warfare, people are killing each other. There's terrorist bombs going off over here. There's famine over here in another continent that could be prevented if people only acted differently. So he said, I feel like, you know, here I am labouring for something over here and everyone's working against it over here. He said, it's, it's even worse when you think about the whole nature of scientific endeavour. Because he said, scientists generally are saying they think our planet can only sustain about three billion people. But now, the population worldwide is up to about eight billion. So here I am, working in my little corner of the world, on cancer research, trying to help people live longer, and I'm adding to the problem. You know, I think it's a bit of a morbid conversation over morning tea at a funeral, let me tell you. And I came away thinking, I've got to be much more careful about the questions I ask people in these, these sort of situations, you know. Easter around the Trinity churches, we're inviting people to think about this question. Imagine a world, imagine a world without Easter. A world where God himself, where Jesus hasn't broken in and revealed who God is. Uh, hasn't opened up the possibility of an eternal future. Imagine a world with lo- like that. Imagine a, a closed world, uh, a world where, where life is limited by what you can see, by what you can taste, by what you can touch, by what you can feel, a world that's constrained in that way, the sort of world that, that my scientist acquaintance was talking about at that funeral, a world that's a closed order. And if you're trying to imagine that world, the book of Ecclesiastes actually opens it up for us. It takes us into that world. Uh, The wisdom books in the Old Testament are a little bit different from the general run-of-the-mill book in the Old Testament. So most of the Bible explores the way in which God has made the world, uh, people rebel against him, and then God's enterprise to win people back to himself through ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the sort of storyline of the Bible. Wisdom books are a little different. What they do is they they take us outside that storyline or alongside that storyline and ask us to think about what it is to live in this world, live in the world that God has made. And so you get books like the book of Job. How do you live in a world where there's suffering and pain? Or Song of Songs. How do you love in a world? The nature of relationships are explored. Or the book of Proverbs, which is more about sort of cause and effect. If you do this, then this happens. You know, you save when you're young, you'll have some money when you're old, you squander it when you're young, you'll have nothing when you grow old. You know, sort of cause and effect and that sort of thing. When you get to the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a different sort of book. It explores the meaning and the purpose of life, but it invites us to do it as if God doesn't exist. Now, the writer is a follower of the Lord. He's a believer in God, but he asks you to step aside and think about a world where God doesn't rule, where God hasn't acted, where he doesn't exist. And as we get into it, you get the feel for what that world's like. Verse 2 of chapter 1. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, this, this guy doesn't have a limited vocabulary, That's not the reason why he keeps doing that. This is Hebrew poetry. He's he's using repetition to make his point. 
If you put God to one side, then what he's saying is uh, this, this meaningless word is like a, a breath of air, uh, just a gust of wind that just disappears. Or you, know, you think about when you get up, winter down here on the south coast, you go outside and you breathe out, what happens? Mist. Whoosh, you know? How long does it last? It doesn't. It just disappears. That's the point the writer is making. Life just disappears. Chapter 1, verse 3. What does a man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? Uh, the gain idea here is the, the commercial idea of profit. And when he talks about life under the sun, it's a phrase that's repeated about 30 times in this book. That is, life in a sense or in, in essence without God. And there is no point, there is no gain, there is no hope. That's the essential point he's making. This is a book that challenges anyone who puts their hope in this life or in this world. It confronts atheists and agnostics with the ultimate result of their conviction. But let me say, it also challenges believers who put their hope in this world. Believers who say they trust in God but are tethered to the things of this world and the promises of this world alone. What I want to do is explore some of the thinking that he explores. Remember, we're we're essentially, unusually when it comes to the Bible, putting God to one side and asking the question, what does that make of life? What does it cause life to be like? So let's explore the logic. Life under the sun just goes round and round in circles. Let me again read these opening verses from verses 4 to 7. Pick up the... uh, the fatalistic circularity of life, as you hear these words again. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. Do you get, do you get the sort of feel of it? When I read these verses, it reminds me of the Clipsal race we just had up in Adelaide. Uh, I don't know if you're racing car fans. I'm not. Uh, but let me describe to you the circularity of Clipsal car racing, just in case you haven't picked it up, Okay. What they have is all these people who descend on Adelaide with these high-powered cars. They line up uh, for a race, right? All these grown men with high-powered cars. The race starts and they go round and round and round this track. They just keep going round and same circle, same track. Boom, boom, boom. Whoa, we did it again, we did it again, we did it again, right? And then eventually, the man who's sort of controlling the race, he gauges how bored the crowd is getting and takes his life in his own hands, steps out on the track with a checkered flag and says, that's enough, everyone's sick of it, right? Now, what is the point of this race, okay? Well, the person who does the most circuits, endless circuits, right, in his high-powered car gets to stand on the top step, right? And other people stand on the lower steps, and the man on the top steps, he gets a bottle of champagne and gets to spray his mates with a bottle of champagne because he won, okay? And 
They'll come back next March and do it all over again, right? <laughs> now, do you understand? That is what Ecclesiastes is talking about, right? The secularity and the folly of car racing. Now, well, not the nature of life, right? Rivers flow into the sea. Right? That's the point he made. Rivers keep flowing into the sea. But does the sea get any fuller? Even with global warming, not really, you know? Why doesn't the sea fill up? Right? How come the rivers keep flowing? It's just sort of playing with your mind at this point. Life today, it's the same as yesterday, isn't it? See, what do you do? You sleep, you wake up, you eat breakfast, read the paper, go to work, come home, eat tea, read a book, watch TV, go to sleep, you wake up, eat breakfast, read the paper, go to work, you know, life just keeps going round and round. Or, or retiring. I mean, retirees do different things every day, don't you? You know, um, <laughs> it just sort of goes on. Well, the weekend breaks it up, though, doesn't it? Yeah, on the weekend, right? we we got all the time. We've got to do the laundry because our clothes get dirty. There's weeds that have grown in the, in the garden or the grass that's grown, so we've got to mow them, pull them out, right? And then we get to the next weekend, Right? You've got to wash your clothes again because they get dirty again and the grass grows and the weeds are pulling out. You, know? you get the feel of what he's saying. just goes round and round. That's life. There's nothing new under the sun. Listen to verses 8 and 10 again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What's been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, here's something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. Anything new under the sun? Well, you might say, no, well, there are scientific discoveries that are made. You know, when, um, or, or ventures that are done that are new. You know, I remember when I was in primary school, first man on the moon, Walking on the moon, right? That was new. And you know the great benefit, the great advance to mankind that walking on the moon got us? Teflon, okay? Meant that our eggs didn't stick to our frying pans. Right? That was the great discovery. And that's the point he's making. He's saying that the nature of discovery is you're just discovering stuff that was already there. You just didn't know it. You're, you're finding it. So there's nothing new. It's just you didn't know it was actually in existence beforehand. That's the nature of life in this world. So what he does is he then takes us on a tour. He talks about uh, some of the things that maybe you can fill up your life with to give them meaning and purpose, a sense of direction. And he, he road tests these sort of options. Right? So the idea of wisdom or knowledge, uh, verse 13. I applied my mind to study and explore by wisdom all that's done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. We get into verse 18. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. See, isn't that the picture of this PhD student I was talking about? The access we have to cyberspace and all that goes on in our world, do your points just feel overwhelmed by what's going on? I've got a wife who's quite, quite sensitive. We can't watch the news 
on TV because they just burst into tears, you know, watching all these depressing things happening around the world. See, the knowledge of those things can just weigh you down because you now have access to them in a way that we didn't have before. Knowledge can be a burden. Uh, sometimes you're better off not knowing you feel, aren't you? Like, take the physiology of the heart. We've known a lot about the physiology of the heart for years and years and years, okay? But our knowledge about the heart and what helps our body to function well has grown a lot in recent years. We know about diet. We know about cholesterol, good fats and bad fats. Uh, We know about exercise and the importance of eating well. We know that you shouldn't smoke if you want the heart to function well. All those sorts of things. You can take steps, okay? But here's the thing. This is the knowledge that doesn't help you much. Genetics, okay? We've now discovered that the biggest factor in hearts and the way they survive and last is your genes. And you can't do anything about that at all, okay? My father had his heart attack when he was 59. His brother died of a heart attack when he was 59. The knowledge of genetics at this point, as I go into my late 50s, isn't helping me one bit, right? (laughs) See, knowledge can be just a, a wearisome and a burdening sort of thing. So he goes on, he explores pleasure. This is the eat, drink and be merry. Uh, The retail therapy, parties, overseas holidays, sex sort of approach to life, okay? Chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. It's not that good things aren't good. It's not that good things shouldn't be enjoyed. There's lots of extraordinarily pleasurable things in this world. But they don't provide you with ultimate purpose or hope. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? Laughter is foolish. What does he mean? I think laughter is to life like the suspension on a car is for travelling. See, it really does, um, laughter cushions the ride, makes it more enjoyable and gives you a sense of ease about going through life, like suspension on a car helps you not to feel the bumps quite as much. But it doesn't help you when it comes to destination. It doesn't help you think about the ultimate purpose of life. Or achievements, stuff. So chapter 2, verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. So this man here is the Bill Gates of the ancient world. 
Right? He really does have the lot. Apparently, Bill is no longer the wealthiest man in the world. There's a Mexican drug lord who has apparently superseded him in terms of his wealth. And Bill Gates is, uh, last I heard, only worth about $80 billion. Right? Uh, poor guy. Uh, but the question I want to ask is, is he any happier? Right? And you might think, well, I wouldn't mind giving that a shot just to see how it went. You know? uh, but in the end, stuff uh, doesn't give you happiness. It doesn't give you hope in any lasting sort of sense. It can't do it. Uh, I've never owned a new car, uh, but people tell me that there's something extraordinarily pleasurable about buying a new car and getting into a new car, the smell of it, um, the ride of it, the tightness of the feel of the car. It's just that first drive is apparently something wonderful for those who like that sort of thing. But the second ride isn't as good. Nor the third one. And actually, by the end of a year, there's a whole new model that's superseded the one you've bought, if you want to have that adventure yet again. And that's what he's talking about. It's not lasting. So achievements, that's the other thing that this guy talks about. Chapter 2, verse 11. When I surveyed all my hands had done... What I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now leave your mark in this world. But isn't that just as pointless? Sue and I have this packing box. Yeah, the full-size sort of cardboard box that we, we have taken with us every move we have made since we've been married, right? So over 30 years. We've, just, we've never opened this box or just occasionally have a look inside, but never actually unpacked it, right? We just take it from house to house to house, right? Now, what's in this box? It's full of trophies and medals and certificates and achievements that I did in my teens and 20s as a young sportsman, right? Loaded with trophies, but we don't pull it out and put them on the shelves because we only have to dust them, right? And so we just leave them in the box. The last move, I said to Sue, we ought to just get rid of this box. What's the point in carting it from a house? And she said, no, no, we mustn't do that, right? So we still have this unopened box somewhere in our house, and eventually we're going to leave it to our children, right? <laughs> And I have a fair idea I know what they're going to do with it. Achievements, leaving a mark in this world. Achieving fame. But so what? Can you tell me who was the fifth Prime Minister of Australia? arguably, arguably, the, the most important leadership role in our nation. None of us can even remember who he was. Verse 16 of chapter 2. The wise man, like the fool, will not long be remembered. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. And it's true, isn't it? In the end, death mocks your achievements. 
And if what you put your trust and your confidence in cannot survive the acid test of death, then it's a worldview that doesn't stand up under scrutiny. It's not sufficient to hold the weight of a life. Imagine a world without Easter. Imagine a world without hope. Well, that's the world that the writer of Ecclesiastes explores and portrays. It's a world where you can enjoy the ride on the bus, and there's lots of good things to enjoy about living in this world. Don't get me wrong. But you can only enjoy it as long as you don't ask the question, where's the ultimate destination? Is there an answer? Is there hope? Where do you find it? I want to just briefly, as I finish, and... And really what I've wanted to do today is to uh, attack a worldview without Easter and set us up actually for the coming weekend where we think about the hope. But let me take you there for just a few brief moments to where we have hope. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Peter there says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. When you think about life under the sun, that is life in this world, a life where God has put to one side, The Bible is incredibly straightforward and open and it confronts this reality. It talks about a world of pain and suffering. It talks about a world of heartache, a world in which we we grow old and those we love grow old and frail. The Bible is very familiar with that world. It's a world where weeds grow in your garden and when you pull them out, they just grow back again. That's the world that we live in, a world that has frustration. It is a world that can be enjoyed. It's a world of beauty and pleasure and riches and relationships as well. But it's a world that without God cannot provide ultimate satisfaction or lasting hope. Because that world without God is ultimately a world where death wins. But through Jesus, through the Son, what we read here in 1 Peter chapter 1 is that we have a living hope, a living hope, an opportunity to be reborn. You're born into this world, but there's the opportunity for being reborn And the promises of a life which is free from struggle. The promise of a life where death is not the end. The promise of a future hope and confidence where there is endless beauty, endless glory that can't be touched, that will not fade, that will not spoil, that will not perish, that can't be robbed or removed. 
That's the promise, a heavenly inheritance which will never be taken away. And how is this hope guaranteed? Well, we read here it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, to imagine a world without Easter is to imagine a world where Jesus is killed and stays dead. That's the world without Easter. It's the world of Ecclesiastes, the world where you eat, where you drink and you be merry, because tomorrow you die. But if, in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he has, then the hope that he promises transcends and breaks into this closed world and explodes the constrained space in which we live. It helps us look beyond it. So let me just finish, and I just want to leave you with a question as you enter into a week where we head towards Easter and reflect on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I want to ask you the question whether you've experienced this new birth into a living hope. Is that your experience? Do you have that secure hope that Jesus promises to those who put their trust in him? The hope that secures your relationship with God that death will not interfere with because you are forgiven and because you trust in the one who has crashed through death and will draw you through with him if you trust in him and will take you to be with his heavenly father. To be reborn is not to deny this world or the fact that you've been born already. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Christians live in that twin reality, the reality of living in this world, but knowing we are called into a new world through the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think Christians are the ultimate realists. Have you understood? Have you experienced that new birth? Because if you haven't, it is wonderful. And it explodes the myth and the endless cycle of folly of living in a world and not asking the questions beyond it. But let me also talk to you if you have experienced that new birth, because then you are the ultimate realist, in my view. So you have understood the reality of the mixture of life in this world, but the secure hope that has been promised to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's an interesting thing to um, tread, because I think the risk for most believers in a world like Australia that we live in is to actually put your hope in this world and the things that the writer of Ecclesiastes just explodes as really folly in the end. That's the danger for believers. Beautiful world, but the promise of hope secured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A hope that no one can snatch away from you. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, this book of Ecclesiastes. It's a real paint stripper sort of a book that exposes um, the reality of living without trusting in you, the reality of thinking that you haven't broken into this world in a profound way. Uh, Father, we pray that we'll enjoy the world you've made, uh, 
understand its temporary nature and that you'll help us to put our trust in the one who has broken into our world to rescue us. Uh, Father, that we'll have confidence because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That uh, just living and dying is not it. There is one who provides new birth into a living hope that endures for all eternity. Uh, Father, we pray that that truth, that reality, that uh, followers of yours have experienced now will dominate our thinking in our hearts and minds and shape us as we live for you now and as we anticipate dwelling with you uh, for all eternity in the heavenly realms. Father, we uh, ask that you'll help us to understand this more clearly, more profoundly, and that it will shape us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.